Hey guys, welcome to our podcast at the Clemson Foothills Church. We're glad you're here. Join us as we discover what the Bible says about Jesus loving God and serving each other. Feel free to visit our website at clemsonfoothills.com and find us on Facebook at Clemson Foothills Church. At CFC, we're just a group of people following Jesus and helping others do the same. So hopefully this podcast will be useful to you. Now let's dive into the episode for this week. We're digging into a part of 1 Corinthians 15 here that is um, absolutely phenomenal. Um, it, it may be one of my favorite chapters in the entire Bible. It wasn't that way a month or so ago, and the more I'm reading it, the more I'm digging into this, the more I'm loving this, right? Because he's going to talk about something that is the most important thing, right? And I want you to remember a little bit, and maybe you don't. You're going, well, I don't remember that because I wasn't here, okay? Is think back, okay? Or you can go back and listen to the lessons uh, from a couple months ago. Right off the bat, one of the things that Paul shared as he was writing his letter to the Corinthians He said, I came to you guys with one message, and that one message was Christ and him crucified. That that was the message he was bringing. And what was really phenomenal about that is the Corinthians needed to hear that because they couldn't imagine what was, was, it was foolishness to them that a king who would be reigning over this eternal kingdom would actually come to earth and humbly die for the people. Okay, that that was blowing their minds. In fact, they would think the opposite oftentimes the way we would think the opposite. Like that doesn't seem like a, like a leader, like a king. Kings go in and they take something over, right? Kings go in and kind of just, um, just kind of do their thing. And oftentimes, regardless of what's best for people, right? And so he came to them and he said, listen, I had to come to you guys this way. Right. And then remember, he was going through and he kept like just sharing with them and bringing up issues that were going on in the church. Now we're going to finish this up because he's saying now we're going to talk about the of Jesus. Right. He came to them and he said, listen, I'm coming to you with a king who is crucified. He took our place. Okay, but now he's going to remind them of this amazing. And I want you to stop for just. Just a a little bit here, and I want you to think, even if it's just throughout the lesson today, throughout today, is really thinking, um, do you actually believe that Jesus rose from the dead? Okay, so, so here's the reason why I say that. I know it's, we're like, well, of course we do. We come to church every Sunday. We, that means we have to, right? Well, no. Like, let's not take that for granted. It doesn't mean anything because we, it's, Easter time, I think sometimes with Christianity, we we latch on to like sayings, right? We latch on to sayings and sometimes we don't slow down enough to even ask ourselves, what does that even mean? Okay, so Easter comes around and everything's like, he is risen, he is risen, he is risen. All right, and that's a great saying, except we're going to learn there's more to it than the saying, okay? It's not not like a magical quote that we can say, and yes, I believe in the resurrection. We're going to actually see that Paul is going to challenge us in some ways about that on our own belief. Do we truly, truly believe that when they went to the tomb that Jesus was buried in, that his body was gone completely and that he showed himself later, okay? And I, I want to challenge our thoughts on that and not... I don't want you to jump into the idea, well, of course I do, 
right? Uh, let, let's let Paul challenge us just a little bit here. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 15. We're going to read verses 1 through 19, all right? So you can follow along here. He starts out, Now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel that I proclaim to you. You received it. You've taken your stand on it. You're also saved by it if you hold to the message I proclaim to you, unless you believe for no purpose. For I passed on to you as most important what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to over 500 brothers at one time. Most of them are still alive, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one abnormally born, he also appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by God's grace, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not ineffective. However, I worked more than any of them, yet not I, but God's grace that was with me. Therefore, whether it's I or they, so we proclaim and so you have believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection for the dead? But if there is no resurrection for the dead, then Christ has not been raised. If Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is without foundation, and so is your faith. In addition, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified about God that he has raised up Christ whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You're still in your sins. Therefore, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. All right, and so I think you kind of get the idea that just perhaps there were some kind of thoughts and some teachings going around that there is no resurrection for the dead, all right? And again, this is in a Christian church, all right? They're going, no, no, there is no resurrection for the dead. Hopefully that doesn't seem too strange of a teaching for you because actually the Sadducees who are a part of like Israel of Jewish ruling council, that's exactly what they believed. They believe there was no resurrection for the dead. So it's not super uncommon that this would kind of find its way into the church a little bit, okay? I think sometimes, though, that we can get, like, when we read the Bible at face value, we, we oftentimes don't let it, like, stun us that much and go, hold on a minute, you mean in the Christian church there were people saying this? Like, this was actually going on, and that the Corinthians actually needed correction, okay? And, and why, why do I bring that up? Because I think... I think it's really easy, like as a community of faith, to feel like we never require correction. That, well, I've always been taught what's right and what's true, and it should never be corrected. Except the early Christians, our brothers and sisters, require correction, right? Let me see if my clicker is on. This is a really fascinating thing, and, and I don't want to go down a rabbit hole on this, but I think this is really important as we're talking about this, as we're talking about this section as a whole, all right? 
because again, it's this idea of they need a correction. We do as well. I hope that we come and we open the Bible and there are two things that happen. I, I hope number one, our hearts are humble enough to be corrected where it needs to be corrected. All right. But I also hope that we have enough like zeal and enough kind of like trustworthiness in the word that I do go back and study these things out for myself and for my family as well. I hope those things are happening. What's fascinating is, and you can write these down, okay, we're not going to read all of them, in Acts chapter 20, right, this was the very first church Paul was talking about. He was talking to Ephesian, the elders in the church in Ephesus in Acts chapter 20. And one of the things he told him, he said, there's going to be savage wolves that come into your congregation and they're going to teach a false teaching. They're going to lead many people astray. Okay, this is what was happening. I mean, you're talking about a generation of people that had quite possibly seen Jesus himself. All right, and you go, how could you possibly begin teaching something that wasn't accurate that soon? Okay, turn over to 2 Timothy. Okay, we are going to read this section right here. Turn over to 2 Timothy chapter 2. And again, right here we have Paul. Again, hopefully, if, if nothing else, you're remembering, man, when we're reading the Bible, the first thing that's kind of clicking in your mind is, okay, who is this written to? This isn't, this isn't written by Timothy. This is written from Paul to Timothy. Paul is his mentor, all right? And he's training him up as a young church leader, as a young evangelist here, all right? And possibly Timothy may have been in Ephesus at this time, okay? Um, but right down there in verse 14, um, this is what Paul is teaching to Timothy, Chapter 2, 2 Timothy, chapter 2, verse 14. He said, remind them of these things. Charge them before God not to fight about words. This is in no way profitable and leads to the ruin of your hearers. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who doesn't need to be ashamed, correctly teaching the word of truth, but avoid irreverent and empty speech, for this will produce an even greater measure of godlessness. And their words will spread like gangrene. Hymenaeus and Philetus are among them. They have deviated from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already taken place and are overturning the faith of some. All right? And so right off the bat, I mean, Paul is writing to Timothy, and he's like, hey, there's these two brothers that are in the church, and they're overturning other people's faith. Like, make sure you take care of this. And in fact, their teaching was the resurrection had already taken place. All right? There was this idea. And so, you know, this is maybe a paradigm shift as well of this idea oftentimes that we, we just kind of, un, un, kind of without thinking very well. Like, we just kind of meander through Christianity instead of going, man, this is really important, right, that we learn to handle the Word of God correctly. Because every word that's spoken in a church service, every word that's spoken in the fellowship, every word that's spoken as we're like, like just chatting with one another, just because we say we follow Jesus doesn't make it like what his teaching is. Right? I just wanted to just bring that up because I think it's so important because we can be a little bit numbed to that. All right, um, Over in 2 Timothy chapter 4, um, this is great in verse 3, uh, as Paul continues... 
he tells Timothy the time will come when people won't tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear something new. Okay, isn't that interesting? I think we could understand that. I think we can agree with that is let me find somebody that will say what I want to hear already. Right? Does that sound does that sound like any conversation you've ever had before? Right? Let me go find, like I don't like that church. They don't tell me what I want. Or in, in fact, let's make it a little more spiritual. No, I, I don't want to do that because it's not that they're teaching what I don't want, but if I don't want it, that must mean it's wrong teaching. Instead of the humility of going, hey, you want to know what? Let's dig into this. Let's read the Bible at face value. Let's not like set ourselves up in pride and arrogance above these guys, right? I mean, the early church, they said, man, there's going to be disciples that they're tired of hearing the truth. That, in fact, they won't tolerate it. All right, and they won't tolerate it, and then they'll go find people who will say what they want to hear. I think that's a warning for us. Let's not look for people who would just say what we want to hear. All right, let's be grateful when God has brothers and sisters in our lives that tell us the truth, right? And we've all been there, I think, in that place where you have a brother or sister that's speaking truth to you, and it hurts, and it makes you angry sometimes, and all those things. And let's be humble enough to go, man, you want to know what? Let's not be people of itching ears. Okay, let's remember that all, even though the first century church kind of went astray, we could as well if we don't stay diligent to the word of God. Okay, that's just something that let's keep that in mind as we look into this. Okay, now a, a couple of fancy arrows. I know this is like super uh, technological for many of you guys. Okay, uh, but it took me a good 20 minutes to get those arrows just like that. Okay, um, but I want to say right off the bat. Okay, this is right the beginning here of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, now, brothers, I want to clarify for you the gospel. Uh, man, I hope every time we hear that word, all right, I, I hate to say this, but I mean, I probably shouldn't maybe, but I will. <laughs> Abby's, she's not waving me off completely, so I'm going to go. But there's kind of like a contemporary Christian, like, view of what gospel means. I hope we don't think of it that way, of just like this word or this magic little thing that's supposed to be really neat, but it doesn't affect our hearts. Like, gospel should melt our hearts. Right? When we hear gospel, when we hear about the announcement of a new king, and that king is Jesus, who died for us, and he, and he was buried, and he rose again, and he called us to follow him, right? When, when we see that word, right, I, my hope is, is that's the first thing we think of. We don't just think of, like, just kind of a, eh, it's okay, I've heard that word a million times, kind of like this static, right? He goes, but I want to clarify for you. This is what Paul's saying to the people. He says, I want to clarify the gospel that I proclaimed to you. And he said, I he said, you received it and you took your stand on it. And I think, let's stop there for right saying, you go, oh man, there's something about this gospel because you can actually take a stand on it. Like this is actually calling us to actually do something more than just go, boy, I agree with that thing. He says, you've taken your stand on it. You're being saved. Now, here's the interesting thing about here is in most Bibles it says you're saved by it if you hold to the message. Actually, the word saved right there is, is, is this continual thing is you're being saved, okay? That's a really important aspect of our lives as disciples, okay? Is, is oftentimes we go, no, I remember this time. I was saved on this time. Okay, amen. There is that wedding ceremony. There is that time we're baptized into Christ. But salvation is a everyday thing, all right? It's a relationship. It's ongoing. He said this gospel is, on, is saving you in an ongoing way. All right? And to me, that's really important to think about, just relationally, because when I lose sight of that, then I kind of lose the heart of following Jesus. He said, you're being saved by 
hold to the message I proclaimed to you unless you believed for no purpose. And so I kind of wanted to stop here because as we're going through, you're going to notice 1 Corinthians 15. We're, I think we're going to spend four weeks in this chapter. It's a long chapter. It's a big chapter. There is a lot of really neat things, but there's some meaty things too I think we need to slow down and kind of look at. Do you notice that word if right there? That's a word people don't like. Christians don't like that word. Okay, it's like if? What do you mean if? If? No, man. I mean, this is not what I signed up for. I didn't sign up for following Jesus if. I don't like, that's like the bad word of the Bible. The if, okay? And here's what I'm going to really ask us to do. And you've heard me talk about this before, okay? Hopefully one of the things that we learn over time is that we become less kind of anchored in to team spirituality. Okay, what I mean by that is I'm team Baptist, I'm team Presbyterian, I'm team this, I'm team that, I'm team whatever it is, even in a college club, Team Navigator, Team FCA, Team Young Life, whatever it is, it's like, hey, listen, we're not doing teams, okay? But no, 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 but the person that founded my church, he said, this is what this means. No, 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 but, but the Catholic Church says, this is what this means. And what I'm going to challenge us to do is to go, hold up a minute, let's just go with what it says. Let's have a plain reading of the teachings here, okay? And so here's what ends up happening is, is in, in, in my experience over the years, there's these two ex- extremes when we start talking about if statements, if-then statements, right? And these two extremes, it's kind of like a tug-of-war, all right? And you have one extreme that is saying, buddy, let me tell you, where, where it said right back there, you are being saved by it, if you hold to the message, all right? You're going to have one team that's going, listen, let me tell you something. It doesn't matter if you hold to the message. You can never, ever, 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 ever leave a saved relationship with Jesus, that's that's one extreme like pulling on it and then there's another extreme that's saying hold up a minute let me combat that extreme by saying you can never be secure ever right like you pretend that you're walking on ice that's so thin that the slightest movement you will fall through the ice and it's all over for you okay it's like you have these warring extremes that oftentimes we're like it has to be one or the other okay and, and my question, because this is uh, an area, right, and you call it different things, once saved, always saved, or whatever, this is a really interesting area because we, have, we tend to have a very emotional response to this. And my question is, have you studied this out before? Okay? And have you looked at it? Because here's the deal, is there are a ton of passages that are telling us, and I love Romans 8 is one of those, where it's like, listen, there is security in Christ, Right? You, you, you don't have to walk around on thin ice. There's not this on again, off again. Man, I had a bad day. I'm not saved today. Oh, yesterday was really great. I'm uber saved. You know, and all these things. There's, we play those games, right? Though in our heads, we're like, oh, man, now I'm not. Now I am. And it's back and forth. And, and, and you're so cautious. And you're just like, I got to make sure I never make a mistake ever. And if I do, I can't let anybody know because, because my relationship with Jesus is hanging by a thread. All right? And then we have chapters like Romans 8. We have chapters like Ephesians 2, where he's, uh, 1 John 1, where he's like, you're continually cleansed by the blood of Jesus. There's a continual cleansing. All right? the, the blood of Jesus isn't waiting for you to do something good. If you're in Christ, it's continually cleansing us of sin. That's a good thing. right? That's, uh, there's good days and bad days. There are faithful brothers and sisters. You've had good months and bad months. And, and there have been times I've looked at my uh, over a year, and I'm like, man, I had half a year that wasn't good at all. 
you know, long periods of time and gone, oh man, is, is my salvation in jeopardy at that point, okay? Well, one of the things that John says, he goes, no, stay in the light. Like walk in the light, right? You could be struggling with your faith. You could be struggling with things. Walk in the light. Like be just clear. Be open with brothers and sisters. Walk with one another, okay? And it's good. We can be solid. That, that's a good thing, right? But we also have to be aware of the other side of things that said sin doesn't matter. Sin doesn't matter. You can continue. And we've done this for thousands of years as humanity, in humanity. Is let's justify why we are why we are, right? And so it's the idea of, no, no, you don't understand. Sin doesn't matter, right? And we want to tell each other that. And we tell our friends that. And we're like, oh, no, I know you're struggling with it. I don't want to make you feel guilty. I don't want to make you feel ashamed. You're okay. You know, well, maybe they're not okay. Like, let's be real, okay? Is that you can. You take a stand on the gospel and you are being saved if you hold to that message. Okay? Now, let me, let me bring it home to maybe a, an example of something closer, like in a married relationship. Okay? I don't wake up each day and go, man, I wonder if Abby's going to divorce me today. I don't wake up like that. I don't wake up. We can have a fight. We, man, a couple weeks ago, I felt like for a couple weeks we were just bickering. Okay, and it's just like, you know, just kind of these little things at each other's throat and all these things. I didn't wake up and Abby didn't wake up ever and go, oh, man, did he leave me today? Is he gone? Does he not love me anymore? Okay, that wasn't even on the table. There's no even thought about that. There's this idea in a marriage that we're growing and maturing in a relationship, but that we love each other and we're faithful to one another. All right. And if you read even one of the, like, books of the prophets of the Old Testament, you can see what God even saw in Israel is you're an adulterous group of people. You aren't faithful to me. In fact, God said, I am divorcing you in Jeremiah to his own people. Okay? And go, man, this is, sin is a big deal. Sin is a big deal. And I think the question we oftentimes have to ask ourselves is, are you actually being faithful to God? Because can you imagine being married? I want you to think about this. If you're not married, if you are married, your spouse coming home one day and saying, hey, don't worry, I know I, I went out with this other person last night, and, yeah, we, we had a great time, you know, great dinner together. I stayed over at their house. Uh, but, man, it's great to be home today. How are you with that? I mean, would you go, but we're married. Like, what are you upset about, Abby? I mean, golly, we're married. We said I do. I mean, there can't be anything. Haven't you read Romans 8? Nothing can separate us. All right? And we, we've been told for so many years that nothing can separate us and nothing, nothing can separate you. But that's very different than me walking away unfaithfully. That's very different. All right? And so, again, I don't know where you're standing on this, but I think if we're going to read this, we have to be very real about this. All right? We are being saved if we hold to the message. You go, well, what's the message? Is it just like believing in this message? Well, man, we spent a lot of time talking about this. Right? Is what is the message of the gospel? Well, first of all, I always like this. Tyler's not here. This is his illustration right here, the honey, right? It shouldn't, gospel shouldn't just be information that we pass along, but it's something, man, that we just, we have tasted, that we can describe, that it is like, like just deep inside of us, okay? Um, and this is what he said. The king died. He was buried. He's risen. 
It was that simple, right? And here's the message that comes from it, which is crazy, right? I mean, the gospel has a message. Yeah, the gospel does have a message. The king of everything, the eternal king, has come. His kingdom is here. He's died. He's rose again. And what comes along with that is benefits and expectations. You know what the benefits are? The benefits are awesome. The benefits of the gospel are incredible. You have your sins washed away. Isn't that great? Like, listen, you can't do enough good things to have your sins go away. You can't have enough good days. All right? You, you, you cannot do that, all right? And he's saying, here's what the gospel does to save you. It cleanses you of your sin. The gospel gives us the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 2 says that we're marked, that, that this Holy Spirit marks us for the final day, right? So that Jesus knows who are his. But there's expectations also. There's expectations of repentance. Mark 1, 14 through 17. Jesus himself. He said the, the kingdom is here. Let me proclaim this gospel to the people. And his next statement was repent and believe this. Okay? Not, not believe, not just, hey, just, just believe it. But no, repent. Like change how you think. This is an ongoing thing, right? Matthew 16, what's the expectation when Jesus said, hey, come and follow me. Deny yourself and take up your cross. Right. The, the sad thing about it is, is unfortunately for us, is we think, man, that's really bad news. Like, can't you, Keith, help me out. Help me become a Christian by making it a little better news. Okay. The worst thing that you could do, turn over to Matthew 16, because I think it's really applicable here. So let's look at Matthew 16. And uh, this, this is what Jesus said, because I think oftentimes we go, man, I would become a Christian or I'm searching out a Christianity that's going to fulfill everything I want here in this life. Like, that's what I want out of Christianity. I want to go to heaven for sure. But I also want a Christianity that's going to give me everything I want here in the times I want it, the way I want it, okay? So it's kind of like one day if I want to get married, you know what, if your spouse doesn't come along fast enough, then it's like, oh, what's, what's wrong? What's your problem? Well, maybe you entered into Christianity thinking that you were like guaranteed somebody, right? Or you were guaranteed riches, or you were guaranteed success, or you were guaranteed something, all right? Except Jesus is saying, hold on, if you're going to follow me, there's an expectation, and this expectation is actually going to bring life, okay? Matthew 16 he says uh, to his disciples in verse 24, if anyone wants to come and follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life because of me will find it. What will it benefit a man if he gains the whole world yet loses his life? Or what will a man give in exchange for his life? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father and he will reward each according to what he has done. So it's pretty interesting here. He's saying, man, well, what if that were to happen? Okay, I want you to think of the top three things you would love to have happen in your life. Like that you would love, you'd be happy if it happened right now. Okay, but if you could have three things, you're just like, man, just when I say to do it, God, I want you to give it to me. And Jesus is saying, you want to know what? Is is Anything you could exchange for eternal life, is, man, how sad is that? That's absolutely, horrifically sad. If we could gain everything in the world 
And when all is said and done saying, but I, Jesus was never my Lord, not only was he never my Lord, I didn't really honestly care what he thought. I didn't care what he wanted. I never thought about that, okay? And if you remember correctly, just a little bit before this, Peter actually rebuked Jesus, right? Because Jesus was telling him, I'm going to the cross and I'm going to die. And just a few verses up from this, um, let's go ahead and... and uh, and look right in verse 23 of Matthew 16. He turned to Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You're an offense to me because you're not thinking about God's concerns, but man's. Right. Are we ever guilty of that, do you think? I think that's a, that's a reasonable question for us to ask ourselves. I think that's a reasonable question to go, man, do I, am I thinking about God's concerns or am I just thinking about my own concerns here, Okay. So he said, here's the deal is, is there is this security and this, this intense security in Christ through the blood of Jesus. But here's the other side of it is, is we need to take our stand and continue to take our stand on the gospel. That we're following a king, that we are following a king that who not only died for us, he is actually risen. All right, and when you, when you stop just for a second, that is the most amazing thing that's ever happened in the history of, of the world, of the universe. It's the most amazing thing we've ever experienced or even know about. Here's one of the things that Paul writes down here to the Philippians. Just, he says this. I, I love when Paul does this because he does it a lot of times. Is he'll go, hey, just one thing. <laughs> like, well, he has a lot of one things. Okay, Just one thing. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. Here's what he's not saying. Be perfect. Hey, if you're not perfect, pretend to be perfect. Hey, if you're not as good as somebody else, then, then be ashamed of yourself. Hey, this is a competitive thing. He's not saying any of those things. In fact, competitiveness and comparison doesn't have any place in the church. All right, so we have to be careful not to read anything into this, right? He's not saying, yeah, taking your stand on the gospel means that you don't ever mess up. Actually, actually no, it's like when we mess up, we still go back to Jesus, and we go, okay, hey, I messed up here. Man, I, I, I'm not messing around with sin. Help me change this. All right? In 1 John 1, he says, go and confess this to people. Okay? Just one thing. I, I love this because it reminds me all the time. Live your life in a manner worthy of the gospel. You want to know what that looks like? Like on an actual, like, everyday basis to me is this question in my mind. Okay? This one question. If Jesus truly died and rose again, is what I am doing worthy of that sacrifice and power? That, that's the question for me. That go, that's living a life in a manner worthy of asking that question. Is what I'm doing now worthy of that? Is the way I'm behaving, is the way I'm loving people, is the way I'm being merciful or compassionate or graceful, right? Is that worthy of a king, of the creator of the universe who died and rose again? Is that worthy of that? right? And it's lived this way. He says, then whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I'll hear about you. And here's what happens when you live and take your stand on the gospel. How do you know you stand firm in one spirit? That's what a community looks like, a gospel-centered community. We stand firm in one spirit with one mind, working side by side for faith that comes from the gospel. That's the thing right there. Right? Is that taking our stand on the gospel, on the message of the gospel, looks like something in a community. Right? So that's really absolutely important right here. Okay, I love this quote, one of my favorites. 
The gospel has a goal. It's to produce a type of people consumed with passion for God and love for others. Right? The gospel isn't, the, the purpose of the gospel isn't to create a self-righteous people who have no idea how to love others. It, the goal of the gospel isn't to have a group of people that come together that all kind of like think we all have it on straight and we're all perfect. Again, there, there are these questions in these quotes that I really like, these questions in these scriptures, which is, man, am I consumed for passion with God and love for one another? Is the gospel consumed? Is that what's being produced in my life? Or am I being consumed by everything material in the world? I'm being consumed with how I'm feeling. I'm being consumed with what I get to do and how I get to do it and when I get to do it. And I'm absolutely consumed by it. And oftentimes when we're consumed by the world, it comes out in the way of drama. All right? Because the, that's what the world does, right? Is the world has this, like, this thing to where when we're consumed with it, is we tend to fight and bicker and we each take our stands and we kind of stand apart from each other and kind of like we don't like people and there's drama and there's all these things. I think, again, this is a pretty reasonable question to ask myself. I know that. Am I consumed? Because when you're consumed with something, you want to know what everything else is kind of like secondary. Right? And it's very easy to be consumed. It's very easy. And this is, this is why I think like, our message to one another is so important as we help one another. Because it's so easy in our world to accept, even in Christianity, that we could be consumed by something else and still follow Jesus. Right? That, that's impossible. And, and, and here's the deal. It doesn't mean we won't be tempted. And it doesn't mean we won't fall into that. But it means we need each other to remind us. Okay, have you ever had that conversation with a brother or sister before? I've gone, man, it seems maybe, I don't know, you're consumed by something else. Like, that's a healthy thing to say. That's a loving thing to say. That's not a judgmental thing. That doesn't mean like, hey, I know for sure that this is your problem. But I think we sure better be helping one another. Or what ends up happening is we all just kind of end up being in a, in a group that goes, okay, let's say we're all okay. And I'll say you're okay, and you say I'm okay. Okay? And we'll call that church. Going, hold on, but that's not what, what's, what, Jesus, what discipleship in Jesus is about. Right? There was this really wonderful thing of Jesus going, you're going to be involved with one another to help each other take stands on the gospel and to be able to ask hard questions and to be challenged and to be corrected. But also, thank God, this is the grace of God. We can be corrected and it isn't like in the world. You get corrected and you're like, oh man, I did something wrong. It's horrible. This is so bad. They must not like me. It's the opposite of that in discipleship in Jesus is, wow, this is really great that I can be corrected and still be in a secure relationship with Jesus. That's a great thing. Okay, that's a wonderful thing, okay? So we're, as, we, as we... As we kind of dig our way down into this, okay, we're going to be wrapping this up here in a second, but I thought this was really important. Um, so he goes through this whole first section here in 1 Corinthians. You can go back there if you'd like. 1 Corinthians 15. He goes through this, this, uh, this first little section right here, and he, he says that, you know, um, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried. He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, Okay. I love that, according to the scriptures. And it reminds me of something, that God's story that he's telling right here, that we have in 66 books, all right, it should be the story that I'm included in. It should be a story I'm able to tell. 
right? Because here's the interesting thing. He's saying the resurrection is so important. The resurrection is so important. And here's the crazy thing is, is it's been, it's been talked about for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus even came. In fact, there are scriptures that talk about this. And so I wonder, could you sit down with somebody and say, no, this happened. I can tell you that according to scripture, Jesus was spoken about by David. Jesus was spoken about through Jeremiah and Isaiah. Jesus was spoken about in the Old Testament and that he would die and he would rise again, that he would be born in Bethlehem, that, we, that this is part of our history. I think sometimes we just go, oh, the Old Testament doesn't mean anything. It really meant something to the first church because they could go, here's how you know the resurrection isn't made up. Our own teachings, we've been following this for hundreds of years, okay? Now, we have one step better. One st- we have one step better than they had it, okay? And what it is is we actually have archaeological evidence. See, they didn't have that then, okay? It was just kind of like mom and dad and grandpa and grandma passed this down. They're like, oh, of course Jeremiah wrote this, and of course Isaiah wrote this, and of course all these. We have what's called the Dead Sea Scrolls. Because it'd be easy for people to say, well, no, 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 they wrote this stuff up about the resurrection after Jesus died. And that's why it looks so like the same. And then thankfully we have this like archaeological evidence of these, of these scrolls and these fragments that were written hundreds and hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus that describe the Messiah perfectly and his death and his resurrection. Okay. And so it's like this no-brainer of going, man, the resurrection, according to the scriptures, is a no-brainer, right? This is really, really good stuff. He goes on, he says, by God's grace, I am what I am. His grace towards me wasn't ineffective. So uh, just thinking about this for a second, right, is have you ever thought, you don't have to raise your hand, okay, just think, have you ever thought, man, we need to talk more about grace? Man, the church talk more about grace. There needs to be more things going on about grace. We need to learn the message of grace. We need to read books about grace. We need to do all of these things. We're going, yeah, amen. Grace is awesome. But I don't think we realize how much grace every verse of the Bible is pouring out on us. I think if we're not careful, our definition of grace can be, tell me something that makes me feel better about me. When grace is simply God giving us something that we did not earn, something good, they say, I'm going to give this to you. And you didn't earn it. In fact, in fact, you probably shouldn't even have it. You were no good, but God's going to give it to you. And Paul said, listen, I'm an apostle, but I'm the worst. I shouldn't even be called an apostle, but the only reason I am is because of God's grace. And his grace had an effect on me. Okay. And, and so the question is, has God's grace had an effect on us? Okay. Because here's what he said. What's effective grace look like? He said, man, I worked hard. He said, I worked harder than all the other people. If Paul lived in our time and we heard this man say this, okay, we would sit him down and we would have such a problem with Paul because he used the, okay, there's two bad words in the Bible. The I word, if, and the W word, work. Those two, man, I could pretty much say any type of profanity and you could be okay with it. But man, the minute I bring this word into it, it's like, whoa, hold up, man. Like, you can't use that word. And I'm going, hold on a minute. Paul said he did. Right? To get something more, to be worthy or to earn something, no. But he's saying, God's great. He gave me something so beyond what I deserve. My only response was to work hard for him. 
I wonder if that's a message we share. This is effective grace, okay? What else is effective grace? You can look at this, Second Timothy, or I'm sorry, Titus chapter 2. He says that God's grace teaches us to say no to sin. All right, this is a good thing right here. I mean, this is, I love how meaty this section is, but he's saying grace does have an effect, and it should have an effect, and God, like, blessing us. Here's the truth. We woke up today, and God has been lavishing grace on me and you all morning. All right, because without it, we would be so, like, just opposing him, all right? We would be so kind of, but this idea of this grace towards us, and he's saying, so that grace is supposed to, it's not God lecturing us. Now, you say no to sin. You better say no to sin. You say no to sin. He's saying, no, actually, I'm going to lavish grace on you, and effective grace, you learn to say no to sin. Because we have this heart of Paul, right? Let's see where we at right here. And then it gets to this section that's going to take us through the chapter of uh, the entire 15th chapter. We're going to hear about this week after week after week. This idea of resurrection. And he tells them, man, if the dead haven't been raised, then we're futile. Our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. What I want to kind of point out to us as we, as we move forward through this chapter is that resurrection wasn't a brand new New Testament term. This was a theme of God throughout the Bible. That is so important to see, okay? Because it's amazing. There's things that we think, no, this is just New Testament stuff, except it's shown as a theme throughout resurrection as one of those, right? Ezekiel has like some really famous passages about this idea of the resurrection of people, right? The resurrection of the Messiah, okay? Um, you have, and, and here's the cool thing is, to get the message across to me and you, here's what's really neat, okay? In Romans chapter 6, let's read it. Let's just read it, it's better. His words are better than mine. Romans chapter 6, I love this. He says, let me teach you about resurrection. Before Jesus even comes back again, let me teach you, all right? And he says this, um, verse 1, What shall we say? Should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or aren't you aware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. For if we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified in order that sin's dominion may be abolished so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Okay, so here's here's my thing about that. Here's what I love about this. He's saying, I'm going to teach my people about resurrection. And I'm going to teach them in a way that they're going to be baptized into my name. They're going to die to sin. And they're going to be raised to new life. And that's going to, what's going to really remind them of it is that I was raised to new life. What's going to give them confidence is if you were raised this way, you will be with Jesus when he, when he comes back again. All right. There's this idea of living resurrection now and there will be resurrection after death. All right. This is such an amazing thing. And it, Quite honestly, it always baffles me and it makes me sad because I feel like there's just like this little thing we have in, 
in New Testament Christianity that's kind of like, how can we belittle baptism so much that makes everybody feel okay? And I'm going, this is one of the greatest things we've ever been given. All right? I, I mean, it would be, the, the similarity to me is like, if we keep just denigrating marriage, you know, and you keep denigrating it over and over again, man, that doesn't mean anything, and who cares about that? And it, all it is is something, and going, no, man, man, families are awesome. Marriage is great. Wedding ceremonies are incredible, right? And, and I think one of the messages that hopefully we remember is that when we're baptized into Christ, he said, you were raised with him. And you can be confident that you'll be raised with him after you die. Like, that's an amazing promise right there, okay? So, so again, I, I don't know what, like, everybody is thinking and saying, but here's what I would say, is let's be very, very, very careful about making statements about something that God made clear. Let's be very careful about that, okay? Because here's the thing is, is I don't want to stand in front of God and him go, I said this, oh, but I told everyone it didn't matter. I told everyone it didn't matter. Oh, my resurrection didn't matter? My death didn't matter? New life didn't matter? Like being a disciple doesn't matter? All right, can you see how offensive that could even be? It's to, and, but I hear this. It, it's sad to me because I hear this almost daily. Is our battle to, to tell the world that this baptism is meaningless. I'm going, man, I don't, I'm not standing in front of Jesus with that. Okay, and I'm not going to say that you just have this one conversion experience and everything's fine. No, I'm saying, listen, we have to be baptized into his name and take our stand on the gospel to continually be saved. All right, that, that's a clear message in the Bible. So again, you, you may be thinking, gosh, I, I got to find somebody else that's going to tell me something that I want to hear. <laughs> All right, let's be careful. Let's study this out. Let's be courageous because here's the thing is, is, this, what I see when I look at this church is a group of missionaries, all right? And, and there are people that may have never heard the message before that he is deputizing us to say, man, guys, we have to live this out to help other people become disciples, people we love, all right? It, it's the truth. That I became that for my family, all right? I became that. I was scared. I was scared to follow the Bible. I was scared to be baptized. I was scared to admit that, that baptism like washed me of my sin. I was scared of those things, right? I was scared to talk to my parents about it. I was scared to talk to my boss about it. I was scared to talk about those things, right? But here's what I would tell you is I was encouraged over and over again is to be courageous. Do not be ashamed of Jesus' words. When he says, go make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, okay? Don't be ashamed of that. All right. Don't be ashamed no matter what anybody says, because here's the deal is, is that my parents became disciples. I baptized my parents in their 60s. OK, like my dad died seven years later in Christ. All right. And, and, and I'm going, was it scary? Yeah. Would I change it for anything? No. Absolutely not. All right. And so I'm just saying, all right, you very well may become a missionary to your own family, but let's not be afraid of that. OK. Let's look at this. This is good stuff. The gospel does give us courage to do this, okay? We're going to take our communion now, all right? And um, so we're going to go ahead and pass that around. I'm going to pray. Um, and again, this is like the perfect setup for communion because what do we do at communion? We remember the death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus, all right? Not just an event that happened, not just something that we're like going, mm, man, 
that was kind of a neat thing, and, and go off on our way and get angry at the waitress that we have lunch, you know, at the restaurant we have lunch at, and not tip the waitress that we have lunch at, and go home and fight with our spouse, and all of those things. See, that's not supposed to happen with the gospel, all right? The gospel is supposed to produce, remember, this passion for God, this lifestyle of as Jesus has loved us, let's go out in the world and love that way, all right? Wouldn't that be great? Man, that, that would be incredible. Whoever, what, if that was the, how can I serve Jesus today? How can I love people the same way Jesus loved me today? That's this message right here. So we're going to take our communion. Feel free to like just talk amongst yourselves. You can have a time of like silent meditation or prayer or whatever you'd like to do. Um, but, you know, again, you can go ahead and say, hey, man, I'm wrestling with this. This is kind of tough or here's where I need to change. Thanks for joining us. If you'd like to learn more about us or have any questions, please visit ClemsonFoothills.com. You can also text Foothills to 94000 to stay up to date on everything going on here at CFC. 